The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We're in the third week of a series of a four-week series on, on the practice of the precepts. And I'm going to start by reviewing a little bit of it. Am I hearing echo? I am hearing echo. Or ringing. I, I, uh, I'm going to start by reviewing a little bit about um, what we've done the past couple of weeks because there's, there's always people present who aren't familiar with, with the precepts and precept practice. And, and my perspective is a little bit different than uh, that of... Um, uh, some other people that you may have heard, the precepts are uh, rules of, of uh, practice for the purposes um, of, of training and for bringing an end to the dissatisfaction that's the dukkha in our lives. Um, there, there are five of them that are traditionally practiced by lay people in Southeast Asia, in fact, for lay people uh, in in that part of the world, most of what they most of what they do in the way of, of Dharma practice is precept practice and generosity practice. Um, we've sort of leapt on on the meditation practices, and those have historically been generally uh, monastic practices, and people find themselves coming to precept practice later um, because it isn't usually what first attracts uh, people to the Dharma. Um, There are five of these rules that are fairly familiar to um, people who have been practicing for a while. And I'll just sort of run through them really quickly as a reminder, um, before I start talking about them more generally, um, they're usually presented as um, in the following kind of way. For the purposes of practice, or for the purposes of training, I'm making a resolve to refrain from, and the first precept is usually translated as from taking life. The second one is for the purposes of practice, I resolve to refrain from taking what is not freely given. The third is usually presented as for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from harmful sexuality. And the fourth is usually for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from speaking falsely. And for the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that cause heedlessness. And I always hear that one and I think, boy, I don't need any help <laughs> being heedless. <laughs> it, um, but those are, the, those are the five precepts that are generally practiced by lay people. And our own conditioning because of our own conditioning in our culture, we hear them as commandments or as statements of what's right and what's wrong. And they're really not, uh, they don't function that way in in the Buddhist teaching. They're really practice rules for the purpose of uh, attenuating or or putting an end to suffering. Um, and their rules. So people, you might you might hear or you might have heard people talk about breaking the precepts or following the precepts. It's not. I, in my understanding, it's not quite like that. My son-in-law is a triathlete, and he's he's a real serious triathlete. And um, you know, he's done that Ironman stuff where you you really do the triathlete thing. It's Seventeen hours, he's out there, but he trains. So every morning, he's out at 5 o'clock in the morning for an hour and a half. Either he's running or he's on his bike. I never noticed that he swims in the morning. But, he's, but he goes out for an hour and a half, and, and then he comes home and showers up and then goes to work. 
which just impresses me. But if one morning he decides not to go out and ride his bike, it's not like he's breaking a training rule, he's just not practicing that day. And it's sort of that way with the precepts. When we find ourselves doing something else or not attending to them, it's not so much that we're breaking a precept, it's not a rule, it's not um, you know, a commandment. We're so used to hearing commandments about what's right and wrong that it really is, it really is habitual the way, we, the way we hear these. But um, these are training rules, and the purpose of these training rules are to promote insight. They're also to present ourselves to the world um, in a way that doesn't increase harm, that doesn't it doesn't harm ourselves or others, but they also um, are there for the purpose of of creating insight. We do that by um, restraining the kinds of impulses that lead us into trouble. In the same way that when when that we restrain our body when we decide to sit and we follow the breath we pay attention to our breathing. We're restraining our behavior. What happens when we close our eyes and sit silently? The mind shows up. Um, there, there's, uh, this this uh, image comes from China, I think. Um, if you want to learn, if you want to see how a snake moves its body when it wiggles, don't just put it on the ground because it moves very gracefully, but if you put it in a tube, you see it flapping around all the way. It's the same with the mind. When you, when you restrain the, uh, the body, the mind appears. And when we restrain our behavior by not acting out on uh, some of the impulses that uh, give us pause, that might give us pause, that might well give us pause, um, what we're doing is is bringing those impulses to our to our attention. So the first precept, which actually has gil, the, the Pali word um, in the precept is panatipata, and I asked Gil how that translated literally, and he said it's to strike at. So the first precept, most broadly, is to refrain from striking at living beings. Um... And the impulse to strike often is anger. So we're restraining those kinds of impulses um, which don't usually help us or the others. Um, in the interest of insight, there's a, there's a great... Um, the Buddha was talking to his, his son... And he, he's giving him this instruction. He says, Rahula, that was his, his son's name. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect, an, or the speech of the mind, these, these texts um, repeat the same thing. So it's, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Would this action that I wish to do with the body lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or the, to the affliction of both? And then he says, Rahula, whatever recluses and Brahmins in the past purified their bodily actions, their verbal actions and their mental actions, all did so by repeatedly reflecting in this way. So the precepts are tools for Insight. They're tools for reflection because sometimes speaking the truth is not necessarily the most helpful. I noticed that um, uh, the the doctors were saying that when Gabby Giffords was in the was coming around and was showing remarkable progress early on, they still hadn't told her about the other people who'd been killed, including her. Um, her aid. I mean, it just wasn't appropriate, even though you might have a precept about not speaking falsely. Uh, and the, I think the example I used last week is if the Nazis knock on the door and 
ask if Anne Frank is here, you don't say, well, she's in the attic behind the fake bookcase. Sorry. You know, I, I can't tell a lie. I mean, so it takes mindfulness to be able to see the situation and wisdom to understand the context. And so the precept, precept practice itself is, is deeply embedded in the Eightfold Path, in all elements of the Eightfold Path. Um, it requires mindfulness, it requires wisdom, and it requires intention. And the elements of the Eightfold Path, just, just to remind you, I'll rattle through those pretty quick, uh, right understanding or view, right intention, right speech, action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the Buddha's program for bringing dissatisfaction with the circumstances of our lives to an end. And so the precept practice is the precept practice is at the heart of this. And in some ways, I mean, how much time do we spend meditating each day and how much time do we spend interacting with other people? Precept practice is potentially much more, it covers much more of our life, involves much more of our life, and can be incredibly transformative. Now, precept practice is um, about cultivating some behaviors, but also cultivating some intentions. Now, if we say that the, the first precept is not to strike at other beings, you know, what, is that, what does that mean? You know, we sort of have to investigate. Um, and so the intention to strike is, is what, we're, what we're looking at. I mean, there might be a time when striking at a, a being, well, the guys who tackled the guy who was shooting up the parking lot at, in in Phoenix, I mean, they were they were striking at not Phoenix in Tucson. Were striking at, you know, and this this might this was not an inappropriate action. It it relieved any further. It, it kept further suffering from from developing. The Buddha said when asked what karma was, or kama in the Pali. He said, karma is intention. And we have, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about the precepts as uh, karmic practices, as being involved in training our, our intention. Um, but we have, a, we have a conventional understanding of karma that's that sort of floats around. It's sort of new agey. You know, there's good karma. It's good, good karma is going to get you if if you're John Lennon, I guess. Good karma, and then there's bad karma. That's the stuff we don't like, right? The good karma we like, the bad karma we don't like. My good karma may be your bad karma, but whether it's good, good or bad is our our judgment of it. Um, the, the the word is interesting. Because at the, in the Buddhist time, the Brahmins, who were the, the spiritual um, priests in the society, they, they, their job was to make sure all of the appropriate rituals were conducted with precision, because that's the way in which our relationship to the cosmos was maintained. And to the gods, so that if we if we performed the rituals correctly, then everything would be cool. And if we blew it, not so fun. And and the word for the correct performance of Brahmanic ritual was karman, in Sanskrit. And the Brahmins became just incredibly technically competent at performing. They had, there were priests whose specialty was the pitch at which the mantras were to be sung. You know, I mean, it was a very precise operation to perform 
these rituals, and of course only the Brahmins knew how to do them in a way that kept everything on keel. Well, the Buddha had a, a, a tendency of, um, uh, well, he would take the words of the Brahmins, the words that were in common usage, and he would flip the meanings. And he did this frequently. So, for example, um, the word Brahman in that time referred to someone who was born into a particular caste. And it was something that, that, was, that came to one by birth. The Buddha said, well, no, that's by Brahman. What I mean is one who has awakened and... and um, the superior being who is is no longer um, acting out of delusion. And with with karman, or with karma, he said, oh no, karma is just the intention. It doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't matter what you actually do. With the Brahmins, it mattered. That's all that mattered, was the the actual performance. Buddha said, no, what's important is the intention. And karma is intention. Now, he also, there was also a different word for the results of karma. And the, the word for the results of karma is vipaka. So the, the karma we get is not called karma. Uh, it's called, um, it, it, has a different, it has a different name. And there's a there's a, a funny place in the in the the suttas where um, one of the Brahmins the Brahmins were talking with the Buddha about karma, and I'll I'll just read this little this little section. Um, this Brahmin asked the Buddha, "Some Brahmins and contemplatives have the view that whatever a person feels, pleasure, pain." neither pleasure nor pain, is entirely caused by what was done before. What does the Venerable Gautama say? There are people who think that if you were in New Orleans, New Orleans, at the the time of Katrina, that was your karma. Or if, I mean, but the, the Buddha's response, the Buddha said, some feelings arise based on bile, some based on phlegm, some on inner winds, some on the change of seasons, some from uneven care of the body, some from attacks, and some from the result of karma. He also said that that contemplation or speculation on the results of karma was not very valuable. He said, there are four imponderables that are not to be speculated about. Whoever speculates about them would go mad and experience vexation. What for? The range of powers of a Buddha, the range of powers of one absorbed in jhana, the results of karma, and speculation about the universe. I still think those pictures from the Hubble telescope are pretty cool. (laughs) So, the purpose of the precepts is is to cultivate this intention. And so, because intention, intention is what you wind up living with. In the in the the wake of an action, you know, if you if you do your if you do everything you can with a pure intention and things go awry and they do uh, often, you don't feel remorse. You may feel frustration or but you don't feel there's not not guilt associated with it. There's no there's no remorse. Um, Karma is our actions, our intentions are what we live with. We live with, with those as they arise. And um, so we have these measurable 
rules that we use to try to cultivate that intention. In the same way, uh, we cultivate metta, for example, with the use of, of phrases and certain kinds of practices. Well, the purpose here is to cultivate certain kinds of intentions through, through these practices. Now, the, the overall goal of the practice is to attenuate suffering. And when, when we say that, we sort of act like we know what we're talking about. Um, the first noble truth, of course, is to understand suffering and to understand suffering completely. And to understand suffering completely is to free yourself from it. Um, and so the, the, the cultivation of, of right intention, for example, is intended to lead to the cessation of suffering. But if, if we... How do we, under, how, do we, how do we understand that? Um, you know, often we say, well, in, right, in the description of right effort, which is one of the elements of the Eightfold Path, we'll, we'll find, talk about, well, you're supposed to um, sustain wholesome behavior, right? Uh, wholesome intentions and, and cultivate wholesome intentions and abandon unwholesome <coughs> intentions and, and not allow unwholesome intentions to arise. How do we know what is, how do we know when an intention is wholesome or unwholesome? You know, there, there are a bunch of different, um, there are a bunch of different answers that are given often. Uh, Ajahn Pasano, who's at Abhayagiri, his, one of, one suggestion he had was, well, um, if you're suffering, you know that it's that it's not. But but often we aren't even aware of when we're suffering. It's sort of like when the refrigerator goes off in the in the other room, and you and all you realize that it's been on because it's really quiet, and you, you thought it was quiet, and you weren't even noticing it. <clears throat> uh, there's sort of this this ongoing dissatisfaction that we live with, that we just don't notice. There was a book titled uh, in the, oh, ages ago, it must have been in the 60s, by Terry Southern, no, maybe no. Um, can't remember the name of the author, but the name of the book was Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up to Me. <clears throat> Anybody know who wrote that? It's just a great concept. <laughs> you know, um, so how how do we recognize? I mean, we're we're going to use these these rules of training to help us identify um, the dukkha in our lives, the suffering in our lives, and the intentions that give rise to it. Um, one of the one of the things that has occurred to me recently is that. Uh, we can notice it when the precepts are hard. We find the precepts hard to uh, keep in mind. And we're just not, we're not um, living in accord with them. Uh, we're not practicing the precepts. And often, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's difficult to practice because if you just say to I'm not going to practice false speech. Well, it's it's very vague. It's kind of difficult to. Um, it's so difficult to know when you know what what it even it even means that that you know my experience was for years I just sort of said yeah, and went on because I didn't quite know what to do. Where um, my one of my groups in Davis. Um, we meet regularly and do precept support work. And um, at times we adopt for a period between, between um, sessions, we adopt rules um, regarding speech often that um, are much more specific. So, for example, last month we, we um, 
we're practicing not doing self-promotion in our speech, unless you're applying for a job. I mean, you know. But but the idea the idea was to, that it could it it could be something that you would notice as you're about to do, and just abandon it, and see what happens. Um, we've also done. Um, um, practice rules of uh, not disparaging another person. Tough. Because there's often an invitation to, you know, bad rap somebody, j- join with me in, in talking about how horrible so-and-so is. Particularly if they're a public figure. It's really handy. Public figures. Um, they perform a real service. <laughs> <laughs> by setting themselves up as targets. Um, so it's, it's, it's often helpful, and you can, you can set rules for yourself, and you can adopt minor rules, large rules. Um, one of the rules the Buddha adopted uh, in, in the sutta with, that describes his process of, of awakening, um, he he had that recollection or the realization that some of the the actions that he was about to do would be for the benefit of himself and others, and others would not be. And he just resolved not to do anything that was that was for the harm of himself or others. You could adopt that. I mean, we're talking about the intention to harm or intention not to harm. You could do that. It's it's huge. Um, it's you know it's a it's a it's a pretty huge resolve. And there's a difference in precept practice between we, we distinguish between wishing and resolving. So it's one thing to wish. I, I you know I wish I could. I'm gonna. I'm going to do a training rule. I'm only going to eat 1,500 calories a day. I'm, I, I wish I could do it. <laughs> and that's not, you can tell that's not really going to go so far. But if you said, you know, I, I'm resolved, that's it. It's, a, it's different. There is a different kind of commitment. Um, and so the, the Buddha was left with commitment to the to expressing only the three skillful intentions the uh, skillful intentions um, that the Buddha identified were generosity um, kindness metta and compassion the unskillful intentions um, greed Ill will and cruelty. We don't usually think of ourselves as cruel, but the but, and I'm not entirely sure what the Buddha had in mind. But my interpretation is that when we intend to um, inflict unpleasant experience on another as for the purpose of manipulating behaviors, for example. If you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock on Friday night, you can't use it for a month. That's a threat. You know, if you don't come and, you know, we do it with our kids a lot, so I can use the kids as an example. But, but the idea is to, is to threaten or uh, levy an unpleasant experience. It's just my interpretation of it. But the, but the Buddha, on the night of his awakening, <clears throat> described as having abandoned all karma. And what do you make of that? My interpretation of that is that we're, he's left with the Brahma-Viharas, the, uh, the, four, uh, the four qualities of mind of the Buddha, which would include equanimity, uh, compassion, loving-kindness, and uh, sympathetic joy. And they would arise naturally.
an interesting story in the Buddha's in the in the Buddha's um, in the canon about uh, a guy named Angulimala. Anybody familiar with Angulimala? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. He was um, he was a mass murderer, and Angulimala means finger necklace. So he wore a necklace of the fingers of the people he'd killed. And there's some there's some people who speculate, you know, what? <laughs> um, and whether it was some odd rite or whatever. In any case, the, the, he, had, he was supposed to kill a hundred people. And the Buddha was the hundredth. And he came upon the Buddha in the on a path in the forest or something, and the Buddha, long story short, bested him. Um, he, he couldn't catch the Buddha. He was running as hard as he could, and the Buddha was not, and the guy, he finally said, stop, and the Buddha turned and said, I've already stopped. Um, and by that he meant, I've stopped acting in unskillful ways um, by causing harm. And Angulimala was impressed, I guess, and he became a monk and um, eventually became an arhat, a fully awakened being. Which is, that didn't mean that the people, I mean, he would go out as a monk and people threw stones at him. but there's there's an important lesson there about um, behavior and habit, and um, you know it didn't have to do with Angulimala's essence as a being. He became a follower of the Buddha, and uh, a fully awakened one. <clears throat> So by setting these behavioral rules, we set up the possibility that we will be mindful at the moment when the impulse of anger, for example, arises, or when the impulse of greed arises, not taking what's not freely given. You know? and, and to actually, be, if we resolve to do that, and we're, we're going to do a little meditation in a bit on each of these precepts. But if we resolve to do that, then when it comes up, I mean, there might be a time to actually take what is not freely given. You know, if you if you um, if someone's drowning in a canal and there's a coil of rope in the back of a pickup truck, you take it. You know, so the, it's not an absolute, but we're trying to work by cultivating the intention to keep the precept in mind, like we keep the breath in mind, as as a a technique for waking up, and also, in this case, for um, uh, providing safety for everyone else as as a form of generosity. The cultivation of intention is not something that we really... I mean, how many classes did you take in intention formation? It's not something that we really give much thought to. Um, The Buddha says what we spend our time doing, that becomes the inclination of our mind. And so we can... it's, It's the inclination of our mind. It's like a habit. What we spend our time doing becomes our habit. It's sort of like, I don't know whether I mentioned this last time, the Oregon Trail is still there. Anybody ever seen? It's still there. You can, you can you actually, you can Google it and see pictures of it. You know, there's two ruts that, you know, run across the, go over the hills and still there. We don't use it anymore, pretty much. Um, we use I-80. Um, the Oregon Trail is an old habit. I-80 is our new habit. And you don't, 
get rid of the old habit by going and smoothing it over. You just start the new one. So the idea is to begin to cultivate our intentions as part of our practice because they, the, the precept practice is a mindfulness practice and it's an ethical practice. And it's at the heart that three elements of the Eightfold Path are devoted to it. You know, there's, there's often contemplation about, it's described as the preciousness of human birth. And the Buddha talks about, or in the scriptures anyway, the Buddha talks about mm, the chances of being reborn as a human. And they're pretty slim. Of course, there's a lot of time. Um, but they're still pretty slim. The idea for me is that as a human, we have a chance to um, exp- to to figure out what's going on. The Buddha was able to overcome the suffering in life, and most other animals don't have that chance. My my poor dog doesn't. He likes being petted. <laughs> he likes pleasant experience, just like we do. Um, but I'm not sure he can figure out. I mean, he can figure out when I'm I'm headed to get a ball to throw. He he's got that one down. But I'm not sure he can figure out how not to make himself miserable, whining and shaking as as you know we're fixing his food. He just he's on automatic pilot there, and I don't think the birds have a lot of you know humans have a because because of the way. So the preciousness of human birth, this is a rare opportunity for us because it is not permanent. And the, the impermanence and the uncertainty of life uh, is sobering. It's, you know, St. Augustine has said, give me chastity and, what was it, the, there were three things or something, but just not yet, you know. Um, we don't know how much time we have available to ourselves to practice and to actually wake up and and put an end to the dissatisfaction and continuing the way we the way we do. Uh, the, you know, trying to make ourselves happy by getting what we want, and that how how we navigate. You know, uh, it's our primary strategy, or at least, you know, mine, um, seems to be just, and it's, it's, uh, it's not like we make a lot of progress, at least in my experience. Um, our actions are all we have, and what we live with, our intentions, and so, so precept practice is um, at the heart of the Buddha's program. It refers it, it, it's a training that we can undertake on you know in our day to day lives, and um, it's not uh, optional in the Buddha's in the Buddha's program. It's an essential part. It's a prerequisite or a requisite for awakening. So what I'd like to do is to is to um, take a few minutes and do a, a little meditation on on the precepts because often the precepts, the way it's referred to in in Dharma, so we take the precepts, right? Has anybody taken the precepts already, in one form or another? Usually, the way they're it's done is it's it's repeated as a form of a chant. Um, Sometimes it's, it's, it's done in Pali and sometimes in English and the, the, the teacher or the leader will, will say, for the purposes of training, and then everybody says, for the purposes of training, I, I vow to refrain from taking life. And everybody, and, and they go through the five and, and do it that quickly. I'd like to do it as in a, in a, a little guided meditation 
just to take a few minutes and contemplate the precepts themselves uh, directly. So if you could just make yourself comfortable for a moment. We don't, won't do this, this won't take very long. But allow yourself to settle and follow the breath for a breath or two. And let's recollect the first precept, which is for the purposes of my practice. I resolve to refrain from striking at living beings. What might it mean to adopt that precept in your life? Can you imagine what it might feel like to live according to that training rule? Can you imagine challenges in your life that might arise as a result of resolving to keep this precept in mind? Some people also resolve to refrain from taking life. Or to refrain from causing harm. In what way might this precept be one that you could adopt for your own training purposes? And allow yourself to determine just how much resolve and commitment you might have for this precept. It's not something you have to do or that you should do even. For the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from taking what is not freely given. What kinds of things might that encompass? Not all material things. Taking time or attention, energy and effort. How does this feel? How does this precept feel? What does it feel like to adopt this precept? What kind of an intention would be behind behind adopting this precept? And how might you relate to it? Is this a precept? Is this a practice rule that you might adopt for yourself. And if you find that it's so, acknowledge just where you're willing to commit. For the purposes of training, the third precept goes, I Resolve to refrain from harmful sexuality. Sexual energy is incredibly powerful. What kind of restraint, if any, might be appropriate and in what ways might your life be challenged if you adopted this precept, if any. 
for the purposes of training. The fourth precept would have you refrain from false speech. There are four kinds of speech that the Buddha describes in other places, four that are unskillful. What might it be like to resolve to refrain from harsh speech? Do we ever find ourselves speaking harshly? To refrain from false speech specifically. And the inquiry here, would exaggeration be a form of false speech? (coughs) Divisive speech, ideas and thoughts expressed verbally that set one against another. How often do we find ourselves speaking divisively? And idle chatter. Idle chatter may actually not be idle. could be serving some purpose. Do we find ourselves just rattling on for the sake of rattling on? What kind of constraints might adopting the precept about speech put on your behavior? And how would you feel about adopting this practice Is there some form of this precept that might be, you might be willing to commit to? Just look at your own intention in regard to it. And the fifth precept, for the purposes of practice, to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that create heedlessness. Some of these precepts may seem more doable. You might feel more comfortable working with one or another or a constellation of them. Your feelings about the may, about each of them may differ. Just consider your relationship to them. You don't need, it's not an all or nothing deal. And just take a moment to consider how you might bring the precepts into your own practice. adopt new habits as we as we wish i'd like to take a few minutes if anyone has questions or issues or puzzlements about anything uh, understanding that please this is just a request for review mm-hmm. i don't know um, and i think Maybe you touched on it tonight, <clears throat> just talking about the place that the precepts take in some cultures or, or in the Buddha's teachings. 
how that relates to meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought that you used a phrase or quoted something and just pointed out that the precepts come before in that phrase, before um, the, the fine art of meditation. Uh, it was a passage in the Dhammapada. I can't remember the verse number. For some reason, I think 183 comes to mind, but you can find it in there. And it's, it's often uh, cited as uh, a summary of the Buddha's teachings. And it is, it goes, um, avoid evil, uh, practice the good, and cultivate the mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. Is that what you're referring to? I don't remember. I just oh. remember that there was something. But right. yeah, that, that sounds like the right yeah. thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it starts, with, it starts with ethical behavior. And the Buddha emphasized behavior because at the time, one did one's duty according to one's caste and, and one's position in society. And um, to make intention a personal thing, I mean, intention is a personal thing, to make that the essence of ethical behavior is very different than making, you know, your duty as a warrior. In the, in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is going to go and, he's a warrior and he, he balks at shooting people he knows. And um, Krishna says, do your duty. So it was a, it was a ethical, it was a shift in, in the essence of ethics that the Buddha made by making it about your intention. Anything else? Precepts seem just crystal clear. <laughs> they're pri- they're to work with. Well, next week we're going to I'm going to talk a little bit about the um, the element of the eightfold path, which is right livelihood which is not often discussed because I think for some reason the, you know, the, the Buddha was talking mostly to monks so livelihood wasn't really up in the air and it wasn't like it is now. <laughs> so there are a lot of issues um, but it is, it is a form of uh, sila practice um, and of course sila Right speech, right action, are subsumed in the, uh, well, the precepts are subsumed under them. But right livelihood is a little bit different and more complex and, and more uh, for us to investigate. So we'll be doing that next week. So I thank you for your attention. <laughs>